On Thursday, November 4, 2021, OSHA issued an emergency temporary standard requiring employers with more than 100 employees to ensure their workers are fully vaccinated or tested weekly for COVID-19. Employers must now quickly move to ensure compliance with the emergency temporary standard, which affects approximately 80 million workers. This includes preparing a written vaccination plan, complying with record-keeping and reporting obligations, addressing employee accommodation requests, and avoiding severe penalties for noncompliance. I'm Randall Rubenking, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. On today's episode, our OSHA vaccine mandate team deciphers the entirety of the new emergency temporary standard and provides real-time guidance on how to comply. Let's listen in. All right, everyone, it's the top of the hour. We've got a lot to cover, um, get settled in. My name is Amy Traub, and I'm the chair of the National Labor and Employment Group at Baker Hostetler, and I also lead the group's COVID-19 task force. Thank you for being with us today. I am joined today by my colleagues and friends, Jay Seegers and Nancy Inesta. Jay is a partner in our Orlando office, and he leads our OSHA vaccine mandate team. Nancy is a partner in our Los Angeles office and is a significant member of our COVID-19 task force. Well, it's finally here. The long-awaited OSHA Emergency Temporary Standard, or as you've probably come to know it, ETS, on the COVID vaccine. As you know, on September 9th, President Biden announced his COVID-19 action plan, what he called the path out of the pandemic. As part of this plan, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, was directed to issue emergency regulations requiring that employers of 100 or more employees ensure that their employees are vaccinated against COVID. The announcement left many questions unanswered and employers who fit within the scope of the mandate began to wait. Yesterday, almost two months after the president's announcement, OSHA released its ETS. The ETS is a whopping 490 pages long. Some of you may have read it, some of you may have skimmed it, and some of you may be walking into today's seminar having not read it at all. I can't say that I blame you. What I can say is that we have you covered. Regardless of which category you fall into, we are here to give you as much information as we can about the ETS. Jay led a team of 10 lawyers on our OSHA vaccine mandate team all day yesterday and into the night, tearing apart and summarizing all 490 pages of the ETS. Because the ETS is so long and because there's so much ground to cover, you may still very well have questions at the end of today's seminar, but you know where to find us. We're here to help you roll this out to your respective workforces. So let's get started. We've done our best to parse out the ETS into topics, and I will tee up each topic to Jay and Nancy, and we'll also cover a few myself just to keep things organized. And our first topic is timing. These are the key dates that you need to keep in mind and the things that you need to do by each date. I think you may be surprised to learn that there's only one thing to be done by this January 4 compliance deadline, and a whole slew of other things to be done by December 4th, so 30 days away. So let's walk through what we've got here. So first, by December 4th, we've got to establish a written policy on vaccination. So time to pull out our paper and pens. We've got to determine the vaccination status of each and every one of our employees by December 4th. We've got to obtain acceptable proof of vaccination by December 4th. We need to maintain records and a roster of each of our employees' vaccination statuses by December 4th. We need to provide support to our workforce on vaccination generally, where you can get vaccinated, local information, things of that nature. Now, hopefully the next two you're already doing, but if you're not, it's time to get in compliance with these things require that your employees promptly provide notice of any positive tests or diagnoses and remove anybody who receives a positive test or diagnosis. Interestingly, by December 4th, we've got to ensure that anybody who is not fully vaccinated wear a face covering when indoors. 
or when occupying a vehicle with another person for work purposes. We've got to provide each employee information about the ETS and that there's quite a few requirements on that that we'll go through a bit later in the program, but it's things like what's going to be our policy, what are our procedures, what's the, the efficacy, safety, and benefits of vaccination, anti-retaliation provisions, and then laws that will actually provide for criminal penalties for any employee who knowingly supplies to you as the employer any false documentation, like a fake vaccination card, for example, as part of this process. Report work-related COVID-19 fatalities within a certain amount of hours. That will begin as well on December 4th. And then lastly, make certain records available to the extent they might be requested by employees or by OSHA. And we'll talk about that a bit later too. So what is this January 4th deadline? Well, it's the last one on January 4th or by January 4th, anybody who remains not fully vaccinated will begin the weekly testing protocol. So I thought we would start by sharing that with you because I think it's really helpful to kind of place into perspective where this is going on a timeline. And it's moving a lot faster than I think many folks anticipated. So as helpful as that chart is, you might still be wondering by what date your employees have to be fully vaccinated. Well, the answer is by January 4th, or they'll be considered in the unvaccinated category and they'll need to submit to that weekly testing if the employer plans to allow for weekly testing, which is a topic that we'll cover in a little bit. So moving to the next topic, who this ETS affects. Nancy, could I ask you to summarize that for our attendees? Thank you, Amy. So in determining who the ETS applies to, the first thing you really need to look at is there's gonna be two assessments. And one is, is the employer a covered employer? And the second one is, are there individual employees who are not subject to the requirements? So let's go to the first question, with, which is determining whether or not you are a covered employer. You basically count all your employees across your U.S. locations, and if you have 100 or more, you are a covered employer. Um, the employee's vaccination status at those locations doesn't matter. It also includes part-time employees. They are part of that total. And remote workers also count towards that total. And let's talk about some examples of potentially people that do not count. Independent contractors don't count. We also have guidance on multi-employer locations. So for example, such as a construction site, each employer represented would only need to count their employees. Employers also would not count employees that are provided by a staffing company. So if you have 80 employees total across the US, and then you have an additional 30 that are provided by a staffing company, you only count the 80s. Those 30 employees are attributed to the 100 for the staffing company. And then there's also examples given by the regulations with respect to franchisors and franchisees who are also counted separately. So a franchisor and their corporate portion of the business would be counted separately from each individual franchisee. Now, while that seems pretty simple, these really are examples. And I say that because you want to note the following. Cal OSHA is going to apply traditional joint employer analysis with respect to the potential aggregation of employees. So it's something that you definitely want to look at and you want to apply those concepts and see if you're at risk of needing to include additional employees because you are a joint employer. There's also guidance that two or more related companies can be regarded as a single employer if they handle safety as one company. So in that case, all of the employees from the integrated employer would be counted. Another thing that I think is really worth mentioning is this is you are going to count your employees at the time that the that the ETS goes into effect. If you subsequently hire more employees, 
and the ETS is still in effect, you will need to come into compliance. But what is really interesting is that if you're a covered employer at when the ETS is released and you go under the 100 employees afterwards, you still have to stay in compliance with the emergency temporary standard. So that is how to count employees. The next issue is whether individual employees are going to be subject to the requirements under the ETS for those covered employers. And the employees who will not be subject to the requirements are employees who work fully remote, so they do not go into the workplace with other workers or with customers or clients. Those who travel to a work site where they don't come into contact with others. So they're in some isolated area where, again, they don't come into contact with either the public or customers or other employees every single day out of the week. And then the third exclusion for employees that the, will not have to fall under the ETS or the requirements is those employees who work exclusively outdoors, but be very careful in making that assessment because it really requires that they can't spend more than a de minimis amount of time indoors with others. So in the event that they fit into these very narrow groups of people, the requirements of the ETS would not apply to them. Thank you, Nancy. Very helpful. Jay, I, I was using the term fully vaccinated in my opening comments. Can you tell us what fully vaccinated means under this ETS, along with what kind of proof employers will need to collect concerning vaccination status, what this testing option is, and the types of testing that would be allowed in that scenario? For now, Nancy and Amy, fully vaccinated means you're two weeks past having a single dose of the one dose regimen vaccine or two weeks past having the second shot of a two dose vaccine. So there's not really a change there. This is what we've been expecting for a while. The other issue that is not dealt with in this ETS is booster shots. They, they do not talk about it at all. I wouldn't be as quick to assume that that won't change. It very well could change. It's a six month ETS, but for now, if they've been vaccinated, the single dose or the two dose, and they're 14 days past it, they're fine. The proof, as you mentioned, is really what's going to be the problem here. There are two avenues for employees to use to provide proof to the employer that they've been vaccinated. And the first one's very traditional. They can get a record from a healthcare provider or pharmacy where they got the shot. They can use their vaccine card. They can use their own medical records that's showing that they've been vaccinated. There can be a public health record showing that they've been vaccinated. And then there's a catch-all that says any other official documentation, but the ETS doesn't tell you what any other official documentation is. So you're going to have to be very strict when looking at that. The second avenue that an employee can use to, pro to provide proof to an employer that they've been vaccinated is a little more problematic, and it's an attestation. If the employee comes to the employer and says they have been vaccinated, but they cannot find the proof or they do not have the proof that they've been vaccinated, they can actually fill out and sign something under penalty of criminal effect that says they have been vaccinated. It requires certain information. It's laid on the ETS when, where, and how they were vaccinated, and they sign it. And if they give that to you, the employer, they can be considered fully vaccinated. The problem is going to be is if you get one or two of these, that's fine. If all of a sudden you start getting dozens of them, at some point in time, you may have knowledge that something's going on. So you're protected if it's, if it's simply the employee providing an attestation that's wrong. But if you should have, would have, could have known that something more was going on, you're going to need to take action. So you're going to need to be very, very careful. Obviously, if OSHA inspects your records and sees too many of those or more than they've seen at other employers, it's going to raise a red flag for them and they're going to dig deeper. As far as what type of testing is, is allowed, there is an option employers can use to get out of a vaccinate or terminate type of situation. They can't allow for employee testing and masking. If they choose that alternative, it needs to be done correctly. So you've got to, the test has got to be administered correctly. It's got to be, I think, according to the ETS, a viral type of test. It's got to be FDA approved. And it's not an honor system type of thing. The employer actually has to witness or some medical person has to actually witness the person taking and receiving 
the negative test. And they've got to do that at least every seven days. And they're going to need to wear a mask at all times with certain exceptions. They're not going to have to wear a mask if they're in an office that's closed by themselves with walls that go all the way to the ceiling or for a limited purpose of eating or drinking. But other than that, they're going to have to mask at all times, even if they're doing the testing, even if they have a negative test. Thank you, Jay. So what I'm hearing is that an employer is not required to provide this testing option. Instead, an employer can absolutely flat out mandate the vaccine and not provide a testing option at all. Now, this is likely news to many of you and looks a little bit different in the OSHA regulations than perhaps some of you anticipated following President Biden's announcement on September 9th. But OSHA takes the position in its regulations that, oh, that their preference is that employers require vaccination for all employees. That is straight in the regulations multiple times in those 490 pages. Now, that being said, does that mean that every employer will choose or should choose to do a vaccinate or you're not permitted to come on site would be one option. Vaccinate or be terminated would be another option, right? Another would be vaccinate or test, regardless of the reason why you will not get vaccinated. And a fourth policy or program option is vaccinate or to the extent you qualify for an exemption as identified in OSHA, and we will go through this in a minute, then and only then will we allow this testing option. So really four options there. We could probably riff on a few more, but those are the primary four programs that employers can choose from. Now, we should, have, we should be aware that there will be challenges under some state laws potentially that preclude or limit vaccine mandates. The state of Montana, if you happen to have employees there, you might have some issues there. Some other states have passed legislation that prohibits a vaccine mandate by an employer. So what do you do about that? Well, OSHA has taken the view that the ETS preempts state law. And obviously this area is already attracting legal challenges across the country. But OSHA knew that was coming and they spent a good amount of their ETS justifying their position in this regard. Um, we'll talk more about some state challenges in a bit and whether and if um, they might be successful and what you might have to do in that scenario. But staying with the notion that this testing piece is in fact an option, one area that becomes tricky from a legal challenge aspect here is that there may be employees who request exemptions from the vaccine mandate, as I mentioned. So did the ETS provide room for exemptions? Yes, it did. While limited in scope, there are some exemptions to the mandate. There are three stated exemptions, but when you really pick them apart, there's four in there. So the first is where there is a medical contraindication to the vaccine or one or more of its components. The second is where there is a medical necessity that requires a delay in vaccination. And the third, which is really two rolled up in one, is for those entitled to a reasonable accommodation under federal civil rights laws because of a disability or a sincerely held religious belief. Nancy, I think we all know that there are very few contraindications to the vaccine as indicated by the CDC so far, but why don't you tell us what they are so we can walk through that first exemption of, an, of a contraindication. Um, so for those of you who read the 400 plus pages, um, the regulation certainly refer to the CDC for explanation for a lot of these terms. And for a medical contraindication, it's, it's really limited. It's a severe allergic reaction, so basically an anaphylactic re reaction, at, to a previous dose of the vaccine or a component of the component 19 vaccine is one. The other is an immediate, within four hours of exposure, allergic reaction 
or any severity to a previous dose or known diagnosed allergy to a component of the vaccine. And that is it. Thank you, Nancy. So as you can see, the medical contraindication, that first exemption allowed under the ETS is pretty limited in scope and will be guided by what the CDC deems to be a contraindication. Now, Nancy, in what circumstances could it be medically necessary to delay vaccination covering that second exemption? Again, this is information that, it, that comes right from the CDC website that provides examples of what could be considered medically necessary to, to delay vaccination. And it includes people who have an immunocompromised status, um, recency of previous vaccine doses, if they're receiving antibodies, so I'm sure you've heard about the antibody treatment or the convalescent plasma for COVID-19 treatment. And also for those who have recent exposure to COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Great, so even there, we have solid guidance in the form of really checklisted out um, medical contraindications and medical necessity requiring a delay. Here's where it gets really tricky. The exemption number three, which as I said, is really two rolled up in one. Nancy, how about disability accommodations? What does that even mean in the case of the vaccine? So in really assessing this, what you're gonna have to show in order to mandate the vaccine and require it is that the individual who comes forward and says that for some reason, for some disability reason, they are unable to receive the vaccine, that they will pose a direct threat to the health and safety of to them or to other people in the workplace that can't be eliminated with a reasonable accommodation. And that's where it's gonna get really difficult because it really is an individual assessment that you're gonna to have to make to determine whether there is any accommodation that does not cause an undue burden that will allow that individual to remain in the workplace without being fully vaccinated, if that is your policy to have individuals fully vaccinated, only fully vaccinated individuals in the workplace. And that standard I think is going to be relatively high. Um, what we're really suggesting to employers is that this is not a one size fits all. The employer is gonna have to sit, they're gonna have to engage in the interactive process with the employee and we recommend that this includes that once you get the intake form or you get a form from the employee that states that due to a disability that they are not able to get the vaccine to the extent that there's information that's unclear, that rather than immediately deny the accommodation, you really wanna go through the process, make sure that you're asking for any clarification that you need and that that interactive process that you're having with the employee to determine whether or not there is an accommodation that you can make such as remote work, such as some sort of isolation or some sort of you know, setting up the workplace that they would be able to come in without posing a danger to others, um, that all of that is documented. One thing employers have already reached out about is, do you have to only consider the accommodations that are being requested by the employee? And that is not the case. During this interactive process, um, where the employee seeks an accommodation from being vaccinated, it doesn't have to, you do not have to provide the accommodation that the employee requests. Again, through this discussion between you and the employee in the interactive process, you could offer the employee a measure that eliminates the direct threat and keeps the, keeps the workplace safe. Thank you, Nancy. That is going to be a pretty tricky analysis, I think, for companies working through the disability analysis. Another really tricky analysis is what is a religious exemption 
Who decides this? What does that look like? Did the ETS provide any guidance on that? No. Basically, what they said was follow federal laws on this. So we look to Title VII and we look to the EEOC guidance when it comes to religious accommodations in the workplace. Um, so what does an employee have to do to religiously object to the vaccine? Well, they must articulate a sincerely held religious belief, observance, or practice, and it's religious or spiritual belief, observance, or practice that conflicts with the vaccine. So the definition of religious or spiritual belief is really broad, and it is not confined only to traditional organized religions. So the EEOC's guidance indicates that employers should generally assume that a request for a religious accommodation is based on a sincerely held belief. This is hard. And it could be a seminar completely in and of itself. I handle a, a lot of religious exemption requests for all types of clients who have instituted vaccine mandates even six months ago. We have seen the issue play out in a very big way. And I can tell you um, from firsthand experience that you may very well see that your biggest bucket of exemption requests is this one, the religious one. Now, as a little primer, the most commonly heard objection in this bucket is that the vaccines, all three of them, were tested on fetal cell lines. And therefore, those religions that are against abortion do not support receipt of the vaccine, according to the employee. Now, many religions, such as the Catholic religion, have actually said to the contrary. The Pope, you probably saw several months ago, came out with a statement um, indicating that the fetal cell line testing was not an issue for the religion at large. Well, if a Catholic employee believes sincerely that it is a problem for them, notwithstanding what the Pope said, you have to hear them out on that and work through an interactive dialogue to see whether that can be accommodated in some way. And so be very careful not to make judgments about what somebody might come forward with based on you know, the Pope's announcement or anything else that you see in the news. At the same time, understand that we have seen so many such requests that are not supported in the sense that they're not sincerely held beliefs of very dangerous road path to travel as an employer questioning the sincerity of someone's belief. That said, this is something that we could talk about all day long. So if you get a request on this, feel free to reach out and we can certainly walk you through it. The only other thing I'll mention as a real hot button issue, it's not addressed in the ETS, is pregnancy is another hot button issue to watch out for. Um, Title VII and many state and city laws cover pregnancy in some form or fashion when it comes to accommodation generally. And the EEOC itself just released new guidance on pregnancy and the vaccine a few weeks ago. So again, a session completely unto itself, um, but feel free to reach out if and when those issues arise with your programs. Jay, let's talk about applicants for employment. Can an employer hire unvaccinated applicants after the effective date of their vaccination mandate policy if it doesn't permit testing, for example? And can and should an employer ask for an applicant's vaccination status on its employment application? Two questions that we received dozens and dozens of times since the ETS was released yesterday. As far as the application process, Amy, my suggestion would be as part of the interview process, I think you tell people about the requirements of the job. And one of the essential functions, one of the essential requirements of the job is going to be vaccinated because you're going to have to engage in a process where there might be people that have religious or disability issues where they're going to be entitled to at least some type of interactive process. So I think you begin it there. I don't know that you ask for it straight up on an employment application. When it comes to whether you can hire someone, and I want to make sure everybody understands, 
you're specifically talking about a situation where the employer is not going to offer a testing option. Can they, in fact, make decisions at the applicant level as far as not hiring them simply because they're not vaccinated? Again, I think you have to do some of the analysis on some of the, the exemptions that we just talked about through federal law and, and come to a conclusion because under the ETS, there's nothing that prohibits you from doing that. I just think as a practical matter, it's going to get very difficult and you're going to you're going to need to make sure that in fact they're going to become vaccinated very quickly and it may be that they need to be vaccinated before they show up for for work. Thanks, Jay. I, I would also offer that with regard to the application process, think about this akin to the way that we are so used to asking about whether somebody might need an accommodation related to a disability with regard to one or more essential functions of the job. So as Jay was saying, it's probably going to be very important to roll this vaccination requirement into whether that be a job posting or an interview where you say it at the outset or whatever it may be. In the same way that you would have a job description that sets forth all of the, the essential functions of the job. So most of our applications ask the question this way when it comes to a disability. Um, attaches the job description for this position, listing out the essential functions. Can you perform the essential functions of this job with or without reasonable accommodation? So the EEOC takes the same stance when it comes to vaccination status. So first of all, and importantly, vaccination status is not a protected category, okay? So that's the first thing to, to know and understand. So don't be afraid about a request about somebody's vaccination status, but be careful, as Jay said, because the reason why somebody is not vaccinated is potentially protected. Somebody could not be vaccinated because it's a religious issue for them or because they've got some disability, so on and so forth. In the same way that asking somebody if they can perform the essential functions of the job, perfectly fine, right? But then asking them why or why not could lead to information about the disability. So it's that second layer, that second level of inquiry to your applicants where it gets a little dicey. Now, the EEOC has batted around this notion of like, well, what do we do with vaccination status on an application? And where it comes out is it says, well, vaccination status is not a protected category in and of itself, but best practice would dictate that if you are going to ask about vaccination status or have anything on your application about vaccination, best practice would be to also tell the applicant that you have a process for getting an exemption or an accommodation to that workplace requirement. So there's various ways you can approach this on your application, certainly during your interview process, I think key takeaway is make sure the people doing your interviews, should this issue come up, whether you proactively address it by saying, we have a vaccine requirement, can you do the job with or without accommodation? Or whether instead your manager's stuck in that interview and the applicant willy nilly says, by the way, are you a place that's gonna make me get vaccinated? Because let me tell you why I'm not gonna do that. My religion, blah, blah, blah. And so what are your managers going to be trained? Are your interviewers trained on how to deal with those types of discussion? That's going to be a really big piece here. Jay, record keeping. There was a lot of discussion in these 490 pages about record keeping. What can you tell us about the record keeping requirements? First thing you need to know is you need to start right now because it's going to be onerous. And, and, and you can, in fact, use an outside vendor to hold all the information for you. A lot of companies are doing that. But, but remember, you're not only going to need to collect this information under the ETS, but you're also going to be able to produce it very quickly, either to an employee that comes to ask about his own records or if OSHA comes and wants to have information and all your, all your data that you collect on your own employees, you're going to have to turn that over pretty quick. So they're really and we've talked about it before, there's two avenues on the vaccination records, right? And, and first off, if you've already received proof from employees prior to today 
that they were in fact vaccinated, that's fine. You don't have to now go through the new process and check all the boxes that OSHA's put out there for you. So that's fine. Whatever proof you have on them, keep that. That's going to be fine. For people that you don't have proof on, or if you haven't collected proof yet, it's the same two avenues we talked about before. The first part is getting records from the healthcare provider or the pharmacy where they got the shot. The vac uh, their vaccine card, their medical records, a, a public health record. And again, that same phrase, any other official documentation, you're going to want to have that. You don't need the original. It can be a copy, but you're going to need to take it, hold it, and preserve it at least through the end of the ETS. The ETS says once it's over, the, the, the duty to hold it ends. But keep in mind, if OSHA promulgates a permanent regulation, it may in fact take over and require you to keep that documentation. But for now, it seems like it's going to be a six months from today process. The second type of information that you're going to need to get from the employee, right, is the attestation. It has in the ETS exactly what the employee needs to say. It almost writes it out for them. You're going to have them write it out in their own handwriting, sign it. That's going to be a record that you're going to need to keep it. And you're going to, it actually lays out for you the exact verbiage you need. And again, as we talked about before, you need to be very careful when you're taking attestations from employees that somehow you're not taking too many of them and it starts to look like you're being complicit in something. You, you must also, if you have the testing option, maintain a record of each and every test of the employee has where they test positive or negative. So you're gonna to need to hold on to that. And again, that goes for six months through the process, through the end of the ETS, unless a final reg or a new reg comes in that says you've got to keep it longer. You're gonna take all of that documentation and you're going to maintain a roster of each of your employees' vaccination status and the proof that you have. So you're gonna have almost like a checklist that you can show everybody a roster. Uh, Jay Seegers, vaccinated, showed his vaccine card, boom. And a whole list of all your employees. Um, OSHA in the ETS has actually come out and said that if an employee comes to you for their own records and they want to see their own vaccination or testing records, you've got to give it to them within four business hours. You've got to give them the policy and your aggregate numbers. So here's our written policy that we've, we've prepared. And here is the aggregate numbers. So I'll make one up. We have 200 employees of them, 189 are vaccinated, 11 are tested. By close of business the next day, you've got to actually give them their own records of the testing and vaccination. So that's, that's requirement number one. If an employee or someone they've given a legal right, most times it's going to be a lawyer, they're going to get that information. The second part of this is OSHA itself, right? They can come in and they can get the same thing, right? They're going to be able to get the policy numbers, the aggregate. They're going to be able to get all of your records showing exactly who's been tested and how they can go through it. I, I hate to use this phrase, but almost like an I-9 type of deal where they're going to go through and they're going to look at it one by one. And it's, it's going to be something where, you know, usually in the past, when we talk about OSHA, we talk about the concern that OSHA is going to show up and conduct an inspection. I don't think the ETS is going to be like that. I think it's going to be more of a paper war. I think if OSHA gets a vibe about you or they get a complaint or something comes in, you're going to get a request that says, look, you've got four business hours. Give us the policy, the aggregate numbers. By the close of business to next day, you've got to actually give us the records of testing and vaccination. And that's going to be the focus. That's how you're going to get hit. And so it's important not only to have the records to be able to turn around and put them out. Now, whether it's going to be by company, whether it's going to be by facility, I know some of you are in many, many states and some of you have many facilities within certain states. It's unclear. My guess is it's going to be by facility. That the only thing that really makes sense to me, but there's nothing in the ETS that says they can't do that. And I think if you, if they show up at one or two facilities or they get records from one or two facilities, they don't like what they're seeing you may very well get a very comprehensive request for all the documentation and everything that's going on. Because I don't, I, while I don't think they have the manpower to hit everybody, and I don't think anybody does, I do think they're gonna look to make an example of somebody and you don't wanna be that first one out of the gate. Super helpful, Jay, thank you.
Nancy, in the days leading up to the ETS being published, when there was a buzz out there from the White House that this was coming, we heard a lot of um, challenge from state OSHAs. Do state OSHAs have to enforce this ETS? And what can you tell us about the interplay between this ETS and any state OSHAs that may be out there? So the reality is yes, generally they do. Um, there's 22 states out there who have state OSHA plans that cover both public and private employers. And in these states, they generally have two options. One, they get to take and adopt and enforce OSHA's federal regulation as is, or they can implement a state regulatory scheme that is at least as effective as what the federal OSHA requires. Um, and they have to do so within 30 days of the issuance of the regulations. One of the big questions we're already being asked is, what do we do where the state OSHA exceeds or already has guidance in place that exceeds what is being basically you know, promulgated by the ETS? And they can exceed those standards. The ETS really will, for the most part, serve as a floor. That could create some problems. So for example, in states where there are state requirements for vaccine-related time off or testing time off, the, the purpose of the ETS really is to encourage people to get vaccinated. So the ETS very intentionally is placing the burden on employees to pay for testing to incentivize vaccination. And so state plans that require employer paid testing may not be considered at least as effective as the ETS. So I think there's gonna be some disputes and debate, um, particularly in court, about what the states are able to do. There's some states also that to be on the lookout that will, could, and I know we've already seen some even this morning, will immediately file some claims in court, especially for those states that really don't have state plans. These are states like Florida, California, New York, and Texas that really are subject to only or only half federal OSHA. So technically, they really should be implementing this OSHA plan immediately. Um, and what's interesting is that some states have already shown that they may not implement. Some states have refused to implement OSHA's health emergency temporary standard. And federal OSHA is not very happy about this. And what they have threatened to do, and they've sent a, a letter to these states as a courtesy, basically saying that if they do not come into compliance, they might take the extraordinary step of actually decertifying the, the you know, approved state OSHA plan entirely for these states. So what we what the recommendation is really going to be that even if you are in a jurisdiction where you know that there are challenges to the ETS that the most conservative approach really is going to be to comply with the ETS really until there's a determination or a decision made as to this issue these issues. Excellent. Thank you, Nancy. Now, <clears throat> in your points there you mentioned what I would call one of the top five hottest topics of this ETS, payment. Who's paying for all of this? Who's paying for the vaccine? Who's paying for tests? Who's paying for the time to get the vaccine? Who's paying for recovering from getting the vaccine or going to get the test? Jay, let's start with you. Walk us through three topics, payment for the vaccine itself, payment for the time it takes an employee to go get the vaccine, and payment for the time it might take to recover from getting the vaccine. Fill us in. Yeah, and I, I view this with the, the way they're gonna pay for getting vaccinated or getting tested is kind of carrot and stick. They want people to get vaccinated. So that's, I've got, I've got the carrot half of the equation. So the, your, the health insurance and, and the federal government is gonna cover the, the cost of actually getting vaccinated. So there shouldn't be an out-of-pocket cost for the employee or the employer when it comes to the vaccination. When it comes to getting paid for time to go and get the vaccination, the ATS is pretty clear 
the employer should probably give a, up to about four hours to the employee of paid time in order to get vaccinated. It also talks about allowing the employee to have paid time. They can utilize their sick under the ETS for if they have adverse reactions or, or some type of reaction to the, the vaccine. Um, the one thing in there that's a little unclear is it does use the word regular rate of pay. So for those of you that have employees, I know some of you have pay them piecemeal or some of them have commissions or bonuses or things like that. So when you're calculating what they should be paid for this time, you definitely need to make sure you understand what their regular rate of pay is. And I know that there are a lot of states out there that also have some, some ideas on what's included in regular rate of pay. So you're gonna have to make sure you comply with all of that as well. Great, Nancy, totally different question that we're getting. Who is paying for testing? If I allow a testing option for people to not get vaccinated, do I as the employer have to pay for that? What if the person goes and takes six hours, seven hours, they have to wait in a super long line to get tested? I mean, those days were here at one point. If we have another surge, it could happen again. Who pays for the time the employee goes to get tested? So let's start with who pays for testing. Um, the ETS does not require employers to pay for testing. However, it does say that you might be subject to state laws or requirements. So even though it says we're not, we're not forcing employers to do this under this plan, that there might be other regulations or other laws that you have to comply with. Um, and there are other things, of course, to look at. First of all, state OSHA plans may have some requirement for employers to pay for the test um, for employees when they have to do it as when it's work-related. Now, what we're finding, though, is that a lot of the regulations that are in place right now and what we see in California is that that payment really is only required when the individual potentially contracted COVID from the workplace. And because you're forcing that individual to go and get tested, that you should have to bear the cost of that test. And this is a different circumstance. Here, we have people who maybe have not been exposed, probably have not been exposed in the workplace, but really are just getting tested because they want to avoid the vaccine mandate. So I think there's gonna be certain distinctions that can be made when you're reviewing those rules to make sure that, that you're not just generalizing that under your state plan that you have to pay for those tests. There's also probably in common law, there's gonna be state requirements where if something, if the employer is requiring a you know, concept of a medical examination that in your state, you're really gonna to need to look at that law carefully to determine whether or not under that common law, you are gonna to have to pay for testing. Um, there also may be policies that you have in your own handbook that you're gonna to wanna to look at to see if you address this issue at all. And then there's also union obligations. So if you are subject to a collective bargaining agreement, there may be provisions in that collective bargaining agreement that require employer to pay for medical examinations that are maybe even related to the employment. So that's for the actual test. The second thing is, is a time spent testing compensable time? And how much, what time is going to be reasonable for sure? There are already, and especially be sitting in California, local legislation that requires employers to pay for time spent testing. And not only is it, not only sometimes has it been this un, done under the state, but even in California, whether or not you have to pay for that time could depend on where in California you are sitting. So is there a city or a county ordinance that applies to you that provides for this type of um, compensation? And there's one more that we really want to think about is there are certain statutes that also require employers to pay for any business-related expenses. Um, that could include the test itself. That could include time spent testing, but it also could include things like the expense of traveling to a site 
maybe even parking expenses or any other expenses that are incurred in connection with doing this for the employer. Great, thank you very much, Nancy. Um, Jay, I've had a couple of clients call me and say, what if I don't do it? What if we don't comply with the ETS? What are the penalties? Yeah, and, and one of the questions we had going into this was whether or not OSHA was gonna come out with some brand new type of penalty for a violation of this ETS. And they didn't. They're going to they're gonna continue to rely on their traditional framework, it appears. And just to give everybody a little overview of that, they have things that they call other than serious, which can lead to up to $13,653 for an other than serious violation. For a serious violation, it can also be up to $13,653, and that's per violation. But for willful, where you intentionally do not comply with something that's required by OSHA. That can be up to $136,532 per violation. It's very likely, if not almost certain, that any violation for uh, violating the ETS is going to be serious. There might be a couple little nicks on record keeping that might be other than serious, but the vast majority are going to be serious. Why? Because to justify an ETS, OSHA must show that something presents a grave danger. And so if they're going to have to justify it by showing a grave danger, they can't take the, the position that violating something like that is simply other than serious. So I think you're going to get at least a $13,000, $653 fine for a vi per violation. Now, keep in mind, that's per violation. So if they show up and they, and they go through your process and they don't like the way you kept the records and they don't think you, you're, all your attestations are correct and they don't think that you're testing on a, on a regular basis, which we would recommend doing the same day each week to make it easier. If they're starting to see little violations, you may get multiple serious violations. So it may be certainly more than that. It may be multiple times $13,653. So it wouldn't be outrageous to see a $100,000 fine show up if they in fact check your records and you're not complying. The real horror story would be is if they find that you're just not really complying at all. They find a willful violation. There's so many things that you're not doing. Clearly you're not making an effort. At that point in time, I, I do think you're going to get a, a citation that's gonna make the news. So I think you have to be very, very careful about that. It doesn't say it in the ETS, but we have seen it other places. We've seen it in the federal contractor mandate no matter what it does or doesn't say in the actual document, good faith attempts to comply are absolutely taken into account when OSHA is deciding what to write you up for and how much to cite you. So I, I absolutely think you need to make every effort to do what you can to comply. And I don't think you're gonna see people getting a little bitty nicks for here and there. I, I saw a statistic the other day, Amy, that said, as of this month, OSHA had only announced, they've only actually written seven citations off of the healthcare ETS. And that's been since this summer. So that shows you they're taking good faith attempts into account. But if you don't have a framework in place, if you're not trying to comply, I guarantee you, you're gonna be very much looking at a willful violation. Um, and I think that's something you've got to take into account. Thank you, Jay. Those are some pretty funky specific numbers, 13,653. It's a little, it's a little strange. You have to wonder how they arrived at that calculation, but point well taken. I also wanted to reiterate the comment that I made earlier in the session, and that is that there's penalties for employees who do certain things or don't comply with, with the mandate. For example, an employee who provides that fake vaccination card, don't forget that that is now a criminal penalty. It is crime. So hopefully that will act as a, as a deterrent. Nancy, unionized workforces. What are the issues for unionized workforces with regard to the CTS? Okay. So Amy, I'm really gonna start with, don't forget that there's issues even if you are not in a unionized workforce. So some people do not want to get vaccinated and what you really need to, to look out for in non-unionized workplaces is whether the employee is by coming to you, expressing their discontent, maybe over a policy that you implement, 
are engaged in protected concerted activity. And protected concerted activity is just two or more employees. They're acting together to protest a company policy and that would absolutely grant them some protection. You wanna be very careful not to retaliate against them, not to discipline them for their coming forward. Now, another thing is that um, there's going to be certain activity that is not going to be protected. So, for example, those employees, while they can come to you, they can express their discontent on behalf of a group, they can come to you with others and express their discontent about the policy, they can't engage in intentional work slowdowns or sit downs, and even if multiple employees participate. So, there's certain analysis on what they're going to be able to do. And before you take any discipline towards employees, you're really going to want to um, assess whether that conduct is protected under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, so that's for non-unionized workforces. For workplaces that are already unionized, probably already have a contract in place, the question is going to be, is whether or not the employer has to negotiate over the implementation over the vaccine mandate. Um, and, or is it just limited to effects bargaining? So can you just implement the policy and then deal with the effects of that and negotiate the effects? Or do you have to actually negotiate the policy itself? And there's gonna be several things to look at. The first thing you're gonna to wanna to look at is of course the language of your collective bargaining agreement. Some CBAs provide the employer with discretion to adopt reasonable rules and regula regu um, regulations, especially concerning health and safety. Many contracts have those provisions that say when it's in a health and safety issue, it's in the purview of the employer and they may make those decisions and implement those rules. So they may, you may have a contractual right to do that, and you can do that, then you may need to still, though, even if you do implement the policy because you have a right to under the contract, you may still need to negotiate over the effects of that. So if it changes the terms and conditions of employment in any way, or the there's an allegation that it is, you will need to sit down with the union and negotiate that. You generally are not obligated to bargain over compliance with legal requirements, but the ETS standard really didn't help us with this regard because you do, you may have to bargain if there's no CBA language that allows you to just implement the policy over discretionary elements associated with compliance. So as you know, the ETS leaves several areas open to employer discretion, like whether to mandate the vaccine or whether to require face coverings and weekly testing if, if for individuals who choose not to be vaccinated. They also leave to question whether they should pay for the COVID test, whether they should pay for testing time. We suspect that a lot of unions are going to um, want to sit down at the table, discuss those issues, and will do their best to protect their employees in terms of getting them all the benefits that they can um, under the collective bargaining agreement. What you, should you do? So given the compliance date, one of the things that you're going to want that unionized employers are going to want to do is really give notice to the union. And to the extent that you can give at a minimum, if not a complete policy, so you can say this is the policy we intend to implement, at least some framework for what the policy is going to look like. So employers who are in unionized workforces really do need to move very quickly to start working out these issues. Once you do that, you're going to want to schedule dates because, again, you're going to want to have these issues prior to when you have to come into compliance. So for those unionized work workforces, this is something really that needs to be done almost immediately. Great. Thank you so much, Nancy. All right. We are at the bottom of the hour, but we've got a minute and a half to cover one last question that I think is on a lot of your minds, and that is, can you talk a little bit about the legal challenges we're seeing to the ETS in the court system so far? Jay, could I ask you to leave us with just a couple of quick comments on that, please? Yeah, it's, it's already being challenged in court. There are a number of lawsuits already filed today. A lot of good arguments against this ETS. There have been nine prior ETSs that OSHA has come out with prior to the healthcare one this summer. 
Six of them were challenged in court. One of them survived. There's no answer, though, as to how long it's going to take all these cases to work their way through the legal system and whether or not we'll get an, an answer to any of these prior to the ETS expiring in six months. So you can't wait for these legal challenges to come through. You've got to start now. You can't count on them, but you're going to want to keep your ears open because there is a chance at the end of the day this ETS might not survive, but you won't know it until it's too late to comply with it. So start now. That's right. And don't forget that in the vast majority of states, you don't need the OSHA ETS to institute a vaccine mandate with, for your workforce. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us for this presentation. Reach out to any one of us on behalf of the Baker Hostetler Labor and Employment Group. We hope you have a wonderful day. Take care now. Thank you, Amy, Jay, and Nancy. If you have any questions for our presenters, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, Thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit BakerLaw.com.